I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. This is episode 5, and this week we're talking about J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing pretty pretty well. How about yourself there, Hoy? I'm pretty good. Uh, maybe a little underfed. I say that. No, that's not true. I do, I have, I do have big feet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, and I'm wearing my shoes. Um, <laughs> my feet are not as hairy as a hobbit's, but... <laughs> we can only uh, we can only aspire. <laughs> okay, so we're reading The Hobbit. Uh, this is obviously a um, well. We would say this about everything, but this is a seminal work. This is a seminal work in Appendix N. Um, so, what 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 version are you reading there, Jeff? So, what I have with me right here is the um, the 1973 paperback. It's the Ballantine Fantasy paperback. Uh, although the copy that's in my hand is the 64th printing from August of 1977. And on it, there is a beautiful uh, watercolor of uh, the hobbits, flo- the hobbit and the dwarves floating down the river on barrels. And I did not myself know that this was a watercolor by Mr. Tolkien himself. Yeah, it's, it's a really lovely piece. Um, it's that's gorgeous. Yeah. That's the same copy I read when I was growing up, but uh, it's not the one I used for the uh, this particular reread project. Uh, I'm currently reading the 1996 trade paperback with the uh, Alan Lee cover and um, some very nice interior pen and ink drawings by Tolkien himself also. Mm, yeah. And I feel like this Ballantine Fantasy paperback is one that many people started with because I, I do a thing on Instagram or when I'm starting a new Appendix N book, I just take a picture of it and I just hashtag mreading, hashtag Appendix N, and when I did that one for, for this particular copy, I had multiple people comment and say, hey, that's the version that I read as a kid. So I feel like this is really like this particular copy of this paperback is very meaningful to a lot of people. Yeah, that's definitely the one I read. I, I might have seen the hardcover in the library. Um, and I'm pretty sure that and I was maybe eight or nine when I read it, although it uh, could be that I might have seen the uh, Rankin and Bass animated film before I read the book. Mm. Yeah. And it is a well-loved and well-read book to begin with. When I was compiling the Appendix N list, uh, I was also con- I was going back and forth between Goodreads and the Internet Internet Speculative Fiction database to kind of put this list together. And one of the things I noticed is that most of the books on the Appendix N list usually have like three or four hundred votes on Goodreads, or maybe like a few thousand. And the best case scenario, where The Hobbit has like uh, several million votes on Goodreads. Uh, far and ab- far and above exceeding anything else on the Appendix N list, a- alongside the other Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh-huh. And so, um, had you read it before when you were younger, or is this the oh, first yeah. time? Yeah. Okay. Oh no, I read these as, as a kid as well. Okay. And how did it hold up this time for you? I really enjoyed revisiting it because I think the first time that I read it, I was um, I was like twelve years old. And I hadn't read it since. So, yeah, it, it's held up really well. But actually, before we go and discuss um, the book and how we felt about it, before we go into the library, let's take a quick moment and discuss our Hygaxian word of the day. And, Jeff, what exactly is Hygaxian? Well, Hygaxian is our, uh, is our cute little shortening of Hygaxian. But, um, yeah, Gary Gygax was known for his uh, love of sesquidquid... <laughs> Sesquipedalian. Sesquipedalian words, uh, uh, very flowery words with lots of syllables. And so are many of the authors who are in these lists, like Jack Vance. Uh, So we just thought it'd be fun to, you know, when when we're reading the books, uh, point out a word for each episode that's featured in the book we're reading. And our Hygaxian word of today is... Confusticate. Confusticate. Uh, Specifically, uh, this word means to confuse or confound... And it's used twice in this book. Uh, at one point, somebody says, Confusticate and bother these dwarves. And then, later on, somebody says, And here we are, without the burglar. Confusticate him. Hmm. So, obviously, the first time is Bilbo, and the second time is which of the dwarves is that? Do you remember? Yeah, one of them. One I... of them. <laughs> That's true. They, have, they don't differentiate the dwarves particularly well, other than, I think, uh, Balin, Thorin. Uh, Thorin and, like... 
you know, Fili and Kili are the youngest, right? So, so they mentioned like the young dwarves, like one of the older dwarves, and then the others kind of blend together out, yeah, of, absolutely. out, of, out of the 13. Um, I do have to say, though, that the dwarves, uh, although they're individually not as well characterized, they are not characterized uh, as a typical uh, D&D dwarf, I would say, um, as sort of some kind of grim Viking Scotsman. Um, they're uh, considerably more jolly, except for maybe the dwarves from the Iron Hills who come at the end, but maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Huh. No, I don't think so. I, I don't think yeah. you're getting ahead of yourself at all. Yeah. I think it's perfectly fine to talk about this now. And I also feel like the dwarves in The Hobbit, the, the, they're not these like fearsome fighters. No, uh, no. Yeah, except, again, except for the, you know, when we get to the Battle of the Five Armies and the dwarves from the Iron Hills. These guys are definitely more um, people who have dispossessed from their, their homeland mm-hmm. and just trying to get back what's theirs and um, eh, slightly um, buffoonish is too strong a word, but, you know, certainly comical. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. They definitely look like the dwarves from the D&D books though. Like they're they're small, they're stout, they've got their big long beards. They're they're I think faster uh, faster running because there was actually a moment in the book where they talked about the dwarves tremendous pace that they were able to keep up and how Bilbo couldn't even travel at half their pace. Right. Uh, but they did mention that goblins are also faster than dwarves. Mm. Um, I guess that these goblins are, it's also some controversy. They're not necessarily your little green forest goblins. These no. may actually actually just have been orcs before he used the term for, um, and that would make sense because this was a book that he wrote for his children first and foremost. And so he was using sort of more common language rather than sort of the various elven and dwarven and orcish words that he created later on for the Lord of the Rings trilogy. But orc actually is mentioned in The Hobbit. He does talk about the orcs of the mountains. Ah, that's true. He doesn't explain what those are, but he does reference the fact that there were the orcs of the mountains. And I did enjoy that the goblins in this were far more fearsome mm-hmm. than the goblins in D&D. They're not your your first level foe uh, that you can take down with their four hit points or something. Right. Like they seem like they're way more badass. Right. Not little, just little green guys with long necks in this case. Yeah. yeah, they're pretty fearsome fearsome competitors. Right. Um, yeah, so I don't know. What did you think about uh, revisiting this book? How did you enjoy it? I have never stopped loving this book, although I haven't read it in the most recent time before this re- reread was, I think, around the time of the um, release of the Lord of the Rings uh, Peter Jackson trilogy. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, it's it's enormously charming book. It's um, the perfect gateway to fantasy if you're a younger reader. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the prose is is sophisticated enough that you don't sit here going, oh my goodness, I'm reading a kid's book. Um, there's a lot of wit. There's intimations of something greater. Um, and to be fair, maybe that was not in the 1937 edition that he originally wrote. And maybe it's part of the 1951 revision that he... Uh, wrote to sort of tie it in with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. But yeah, there's intimations of something greater. Um, Gandalf is maybe not as he is portrayed later on in the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy, but again, that's maybe just Bilbo's picture of him, Mm -hmm. right? And we know that Gandalf contains multitudes. Um, So, and there's actually quite a bit of wit with the... um, uh, in Lake Town, about the uh, sort of the counselor of Lake Town, how he's kind of sort of, uh, you know, venal, and then mm-hmm. you know, Bard is of the uh, true old uh, stock of Lake Town and of the North. So um, there's a little bit of social commentary, I, th- I think, in there. That's um, you know, kind of with a light hand, but mm-hmm. it's there. I think that there's a you know, there's still uh, quite a bit in there for something that's uh, seemingly just a straightforward you know journey there and back, as they say. Well, and speaking of social commentary, I know I told you about this when this happened a few months ago when we first did this book. But when I was originally reading The Hobbit for the Appendix N Book Club, which was a few months ago at this point, I was um, I was visiting a, I was at my doctor's office, and uh, he was taking a look at my deviated septum, and he saw that I was reading uh, The Hobbit, and he's like, "Oh, I don't like that book." And I was like, why? What's wrong with it? He's like, oh, that, that book is so anti-German. I, I have no idea what he means by that. <laughs> and I hadn't finished. Re- so I, w- I was rereading this thing being like, okay, I'm sure I'm going to find like whatever it is he's referring to. I, I could not figure it out. I am completely mystified by the comment. I'm, I'm, I don't know if he's drawing a line between Germans and goblins. Uh, is the word G in there? Or, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, because like, yes, in the end of the book, there's, there's, there's the point where the, the goblins, I'm sorry, the goblins, the, the dwarves and the elves are at odds with one another and the men have aligned with the elves. So here you've got these races of people who are generally allies and then they, um, but they're, they're, they're so uh, fractured and splintered at the moment. But then this greater evil, the goblins, they come through. And then everybody bands together to like defeat the goblins. 
I don't know if in that scenario he thinks that the Germans are the goblins and the rest of the world was uh, the humans. And yeah, the I'm completely dwarves. mystified. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I know that there is a <laughs> um, strong tendency to want to read um, Hobbit and Lord of the Rings as allegorical fiction, and I know that Tolkien himself very much resisted this. But, you know, you want to read it into because he was a veteran of World War One, and he lived, He was living through World War Two as he was composing and recomposing his various works. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're talking about this evil out of the East. And, you know, the Hobbit is clearly the uh, – the Hobbits are clearly the idealization and representation of the bucolic English ideal. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there's, there's a tendency to want to say, okay, this is, a, this is a, again, a one-for-one mapping with this. But as we – when we were talking about uh, Robert E. Howard – a few episodes back, he was more sophisticated than just to say, oh, the Stygians are just the Egyptians and, you know, the hobbits. And in this case, Tolkien is clearly more sophisticated than just saying, oh, the hobbits are just, you know, rural English people. So I don't know, you know, what, (laughs) why you would pull the Germans into there as, well, (laughs) maybe in the Lord of the Rings, but I don't see it in the Hobbit at all. Yeah, it's very strange. completely mystified. And one thing that is really interesting about the, the Hobbit as a part of the Appendix N specifically is really how much it contrasts with everything else we've been reading, because you're talking about the the bucolic countryside of England. And I'm thinking about how our main characters in most of our stories tend to be people who are drawn to and excited by violence, bloodshed, carnality, and the pleasures of the flesh, where here... Our, our protagonists and the, and the world that we're trying to protect, they're people who enjoy, you know, delicious food and sitting by the fireside and smoking a nice pipe and, and sharing a nice so- story and singing a song. It's a very different kind of uh, hero in this situation. Oh, absolutely. And maybe this is a case where we can draw some sort of uh, national analogy. This, I believe, is the first work that we're reading in this series by an English, a non-American author. And so sure. maybe this is an uh, aspect of that. And it's certainly um, some of the other appendix and authors were people who grew up in the early or middle part of the 20th century, often in sort of more rural areas that were, you know, had been very recently settled within living memory, so to speak. So that East, you know, West Texas and stuff like that. And not, mm-hmm. not necessarily in the memory of the writer themselves, yes. but within the living memory of, of people uh, that they were growing up in. So mm-hmm. now yeah. other than Tolkien and Moorcock, are they the only English writers on the list? I'm forgetting. Oh, wait, it's Dunsany? Dunsany was uh, Anglo-Irish. Okay, and um, okay. So I'm sure there's a few others, but, you know, certainly there's... I think everybody else is American, though, right? Um, it could be. I would have to look at the list, but I, yeah. I, those are the only ones that pop out at me, mm-hmm. you know? It's a very American, very, yeah. a very a list of very, very American authors. Right. And, and I think we've talked about, to a certain extent, um, how some of this fantasy... The Hobbit specifically, but how some of the fantasy we're looking at does not necessarily reflect a medieval worldview. It's actually an overlay over the idea of sort of uh, the Western frontier ethos mm-hmm. in some in some regards. And certainly there's some of that in Conan, which will, again, this is not the topic of this episode. We'll come back to that when we do another Conan episode. But I think that the Hobbit, you know, the, the lived experience that Tolkien had when he was creating The Hobbit certainly um, is different than that of the other authors that we've been looking at. You know, a man who saw most of his generation... Uh, wiped out in World War One, and managed to survive that and then uh, probably just wanted to have the rest of his life be completely peaceful but yet he saw these dark clouds coming as he was composing The Hobbit um, and composing The Lord of the Rings you know these dark clouds on the horizon so that certainly would have had an influence on what he was doing even if again if it's not a one-to-one analogy I think it certainly would have been you know in the air mm-hmm. uh, so how do you feel um, what, what kind of a role do you feel like The Hobbit had in the creation of fantasy role-playing? Oh, I think it's um, clearly there in front and center. Now, I know that Gary Gygax has been, um, or has gone on the record as being saying it's not the primary influence on D&D, and I'll take him at his word on that. But I think that um, anybody who was wanted to play fantasy role-playing games, that would have been in the air um, in the late 60s and in the early 70s. You would just have to have accommodate that. And it certainly was right there in Chainmail. The Ents are there, the Hobbits are there, and then, you know, D&D, they're there. And again, to what extent it influenced his creation of the game, uh, again, I'll take his word for it that it was not the primary influence, that, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs and some other authors, you know, Robert E. Howard again and, and Lovecraft were uh, more front and center in his consciousness. But he would have to accommodate the possibility of people wanting to play that in the game. And so they're right there, you know, the halflings or the Hobbits, I think it was even how it was written in the 
first edition of D&D before, you know, the Tolkien estate said, no, 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 cease and desist there, mm-hmm. you know. But yeah. oh, absolutely the, the Balrogs are in there. Mm-hmm. Um, the conception of sort of intelligent dragons who can sort of, um, you know, interact with the mm-hmm. party as opposed to just being this, you know, monstrous force of nature. Yeah. Um, is clearly Smog, or not just Smog, but Smog is clearly an exemplar of that. So... I think it's undeniable that The Hobbit and the rest of Tolkien's work is uh, enormously influential, even at the creation. And obviously later on, yeah. people were bringing you know, their love of that even further into the game. Sure. And so now we have people who are reading half, you know, have halflings and all that in the game who maybe have no connection to Tolkien, but have connections that they think of halfling or orc or you know, dragon sleeping on a pile of treasure. You know, again, we've talked about things referring to themselves mm-hmm. now through the gaming market, and then they, they come back to Tolkien. Uh, after having seen that in the gaming. Absolutely. And we can get back to halflings in a moment because I personally feel like what we think of as a halfling now is very different to what we think of as a hobbit now. Over As, as time has passed, those have really diverged quite a bit. Um, but talking about the very roots of uh, Dungeons & Dragons and its roots in chainmail and talking about that relationship with... Um, I guess that's really not The Hobbit, that's The Lord of the Rings, but it's still kind of part of the world that we're speaking of. I know that uh, for those who, who don't know the, the very early history of Dungeons & Dragons, uh, there was originally, it was, a, it was a war game called Chainmail, and Gary Gygax wrote a fantasy supplement for it. And basically, Chainmail at the time was being used to run like Napoleonic Wars, you're having these, uh, you're like moving these, these, um, these little armies across vast terrains to battle with one another. But people kept wanting to do like the battle at Helm's Deep. Right. And, and all of these battle big... of five armies at you know, then the Hobbit. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. yeah. So the Hobbit does play a big part of that. Yeah. Um, and they were specifically wanting to do these like Tolkien wars with the miniatures. So Gary Gygax wrote the fantasy supplement specifically to do that. So that was without a doubt a Tolkien thing. And then f- from that fantasy supplement, Dave Arneson took that and started playing with that supplement, but using individual characters instead of armies. And then when that got back to Gary, Gary and David worked together to create the first iteration of Dungeons and Dragons. So there's without a doubt a very heavy Tolkien presence in there because of why what they were doing with Chainmail to begin with. But I do absolutely believe that uh, Gary's personal interests were much more in the realm of Conan and Fafford and Greymouser. And as D&D continued to evolve, I think it became even more prevalent, and especially come the time that Gary's writing the 1979 um, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide, uh, and he's actually writing the appendix in, I really feel like the Dungeons & Dragons that he's crafted at that point Although there's still a ton of stuff from the from the Lord of the Rings and from The Hobbit, there's also a ton of stuff from many other sources as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, and we've talked about how well it could model that stuff. And, and obviously, you know, again, we've got another 40 years worth of game design to sort of specifically model specific experiences, um, you know, in the Appendix N or other fantasy fiction. But, you know, it's it, it's a very brave attempt to try to encompass you know, basically the entire spectrum of fantasy fiction up to 1979 and mm-hmm. have it somehow be playable. Yeah. Um, so, and, and, you know, again, people, if you were said the word fantasy, then I, I'm assuming that the first thing that would pop to mind, you know, after maybe Conan, you know, would be Lord of the Rings or maybe before Conan in certain regards, um, depending on, you know, exactly when you came into fantasy fiction. So if you said, you know, if you had a fantasy, said fantasy game and had the word fantasy, you know, front and center and then people opened it up and said what there's no hobbits there's no nazgul there's no rangers what am i going to do with this you know yeah clearly part of the game not necessarily the motivating factor mm-hmm. on gary gygax's part i don't know as much about dave arneson's uh you know preferences so i i can't speak to that but i, I yeah it's undeniable that it's a it's a core um component component yeah it's yeah. a core component yeah and um, and certainly we're looking at it, and you've got high elves and wood elves and light elves and deep elves and sea elves. Right. You know, lots and lots of elves. And certainly the elves that are in Dungeons and Dragons feel like the elves from The Hobbit. Sure, the gray elves and the, the wood elves specifically. And actually, that's interesting. So maybe the drow were uh, Gary Gygax's attempt to sort of reclaim sort of the weirder elves that, you know, were present in sort of earlier fiction, mm-hmm. you know, so to speak. 
just to say, oh, no, 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 it's not, you know, elves were sort of weird and dangerous in the fiction at one point, and here's your weird and dangerous elf, mm. you know. But, uh, yeah, no, it's certainly as they were written, as I recall in the Monster Manual, um, you, they were clearly sort of Tolkienish elves, although they were shorter since the Tolkien elves were all tend to be over six foot tall, and I think the tallest elf was, you know, the gray elf was like five foot six or something like that. Sure. So, but, uh, yeah, yeah, so the elves clearly were there, the hobbits. I mm-hmm. think the way the dwarves were written, uh, I think, again, we've seen the dwarves kind of evolve to be more sort of like miniature Vikings uh, in fantasy role-playing, uh, by and large. Um, but the the roots of the D&D dwarf are clearly, I think, um, the Tolkien dwarf. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly uh, the dwarves of the Iron Hills, Gimli, maybe not so much... Uh, Thorin's companions in The Hobbit, but Thorin himself, sure. You know, the the greed for the gold, the lust for the gold, that kind of stuff like that. It's, it's all there. Now, Gandalf is not the prototype of the D&D magic user, though. Or he's, Gandalf is a very hard character to get a handle on, I think. I think. Um, well, in he, a lot of ways, it's yeah. because the, the way in which he's written, it's hard to even understand what Gandalf can and can't do. Right. The, the, the limits to his powers are very unclear. Um, although one thing that was interesting that I, I um, was surprised by is in the book it says that he took a special study of bewitchments with fire and lights. So it does tell us that like that is the kind of magic which he specializes in, fire magic and light magic. I haven't really seen a lot of that. I mean, when, when he was up in the trees and they were being surrounded by the, by the wargs, he was throwing flaming pine cones at them. Right. I guess uh, he was known for doing the uh, fireworks shows. And the fireworks, in the shire, in the shire, yeah. So. Fireworks are cool. Yeah. Those are pretty cool. Um, I mean, we later on find that uh, that uh, Gandalf and his fellow wizards are essentially uh, embodied spirits. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's in The Lord of the Rings. It's nowhere, n- nowhere known in The Hobbit. The Hobbit is, uh, you know, almost only what could be known from Bilbo's point of view, in, mm-hmm. in a sense. I mean, it's not literally all from Bilbo's point of view, but it's almost only what he could know. Now, one thing that I would do, if I if I had unlimited time to prepare for each of these episodes, one thing that I would also do, which I don't presently have the time to do, but wish that I had, is I would also look at all of the role-playing games that had been designed to emulate this specific fiction. Because oh, sure. I know there are multiple Lord of the Rings and Hobbit role-playing games. Oh, sure. Games. Yeah, there was the uh, MERP that was based off of a Role Master. Yeah. The current... Have you played any of these? Uh, I remember seeing some of the supplements. I didn't play those. Uh, I did. I remember people getting the role master supplements and reading through. Then you saw some, like you know, uh, you know, Elrond was like an 80th level whatever character okay. it was. And, and uh, now, now there's the One Ring. The One Ring, and now there's the One Ring 5e adaptation. Okay. Because um, I would be curious how they handle magic in those, because it's it's really unclear how. When when a person casts a spell, is it draining some kind of a physical resource? Can they just cast spells as often as they want? That's that's very unclear to me. Right. I don't recall. Again, I didn't ever played MERP or MERP. I don't know how the people refer to it. I remember having my friends having supplements and flipping through them, and I remember actually they had uh, really gorgeous cover illustrations and nice Liz Danforth mm-hmm. uh, interior illustrations too. It was a kind of a high point of. Uh, of uh, late 80s, early 90s uh, RPG art um, before it became very slick, you know, multicolor, you know, yeah. nice. I don't remember the specific mechanic involved, though. And again, I haven't played any of the, the latest versions. I do know that people are very fond of the um, well, the One Ring uh, because it was specifically geared towards the Middle Earth and not so much a sort of um, a D&D reskinning. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's important. If you're going to do a, a pure Lord of the Rings game, I, I think that... Again, people who play 5e could tell us that we're wrong, but I think that um, you're going to have to gear it towards that that specific world rather than try to just reskin D&D and expect a one-to-one correlation. Sure. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Gandalf definitely, in many ways, I love this character. He's he's very fun to read. He also bugs the crap out of me sometimes too, though. Oh, why um, is that? And it, it's less about him and it's more about how he's used in the story that really bothers me. Because uh, I really hate how like whenever... Something goes wrong. You just kind of conveniently Gandalf appears to fix the situation. Or whenever Gandalf something goes wrong when Gandalf is there, magically the giant eagles appear to fix the situation. And I remember we were talking back in episode one about, about that moment where Harold Shea is cornered and he's about to be defeated. But then Bill Phoebe's arrow comes out out of nowhere and saves the day. 
And an occasional moment like that can be really exciting and a fun way to introduce a character. But if that character does that more than once in a single story, <laughs> and because I, I believe Gandalf does it twice in the story and the giant eagles do it twice, and it's like, come on, are these guys just going to save them every time something goes south? I can see that being a problem, but I don't recall feeling that way when I was a child reading this, and maybe that's the point. Maybe he, again, he was writing for his children initially and other children, and so you can... You can't get too dark with kids, right? I mean, kids are very smart, but you can't get too dark with them. So you have to give them a little bit of relief. And I don't know if he originally was uh, wrote The Hobbit as one unified work or if he was telling his kids these as segments of stories and mm-hmm. then later strung it together as a novel. So there's that sort of build up and release, build up and release. And I think that is useful for younger readers who need that sort of... Um, it can help sort of with their their attention and stuff like that. And maybe as an adult reader, you know, we find that sort of contrived. And I think you can do that without relying on cheap devices. You know, because I do recognize that this book was written for a younger audience. However, I'm coming at this as a 37-year-old man who's mm-hmm. reading the Appendix N. And definitely those devices were, 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 were annoying me while reading it. Um, yeah, I have to say that it didn't it didn't particular particularly bother me, but you know I hadn't thought of it, you know. So uh, you know, maybe it's just my overall fondness for the story, just sure. kind of kind of like blinding me to you know some you know the elef- the elephant in the room. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I think there's um, you know again I think there's that out of the frying pan into the fire element of this mm-hmm. book, and so we just raise the stakes. But it's not you know it gets oh but not too dark because mm-hmm. it's still for kids. You know it gets there oh not too dark yeah. right so gets close but not quite there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's you know there's some very um, funny bits in there. Like think of the the time that uh, Bilbo is stuck in the um, hall of the Elven King in Mirkwood as something that's just like. Well, uh, it gets resolved in, you know, a couple of hours. But he's actually down there for weeks, as I recall, down in the... Um, oh, yeah. You know, so... Um, a lot of time passes yeah. throughout this throughout this story. Yeah. And, he, okay, so I'm going to be I'm gonna be the, the sourpuss here. But that was another thing that really bothered me, actually, while I was reading it, was... Uh, so so they're, they're, they're in the mountain, and they've got their big, their big battle with the goblins, and it's completely dark, and Bilbo happens to get knocked out. And when he wakes up, he happens to wake up next to the ring, which Gollum has happened to have lost for the first time. And there, there are so many coincidences that lead to this to, uh, lead to this happening. And I, I realized you can argue that the One Ring is a sentient ring, and perhaps it was making it so that this would happen. Possibly, I don't know, but it 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 seems like it relies. Quite a bit on coincidence. Right. That might have been a retcon on Tolkien's part. As a fact, um, you know, he did revise The Hobbit in 1951 to fit in more closely with the, uh, you know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Okay. So, yeah, it could literally be a retcon um, before they had that word. But, um, again, I don't know. Um, yeah, I suppose that, you know, in our modern day um, readings of fiction, we, we desire a certain level of... Um, Realism, eh? I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, what we would consider realism within the terms of the world, mm-hmm. right? And if that, and whereas The Hobbit is clearly a tale, right? It's a tale to be told mm-hmm. as opposed to, oh, this is the thing that happened from minute to minute to minute. This is a tale to be told. It's maybe not literally Bilbo telling us sitting by the fire smoking his pipe, but it's, it has that feeling yeah. of of that. But thinking about it from a gaming perspective, it's like if if I'm a player in a game and I've got my character and my character is knocked out in a dark hall and then wakes up and opens his eyes and the most amazing magical item just happens to be sitting there, if that's the way that I encounter this, this a really amazing magical item, that might be kind of disappointing versus actually having some big story where I'm like out on this big quest for this item or I like defeat this really uh, a really amazing foe and from the horde I'm able to take away this great item instead of just like, oh, I tripped and I fell, and now this thing is just kind of sitting in my face. Yeah, I can certainly see that. On the other hand, if you as a game master sort of want to lay pipe for a future session without necessarily triggering the player as to, you know, what was going on or, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, twigging the player, um, you give them this little ring. It's, oh, it's a ring of invisibility. They don't really know it's the one ring, right? It's like, oh, it's it's a ring of invisibility. Great, we'll use it. You know, it's it's fine. You know, no problem, right? It's a little throw. So in that sense, you know, if, if Bilbo is your typical PC who is not fully informed of you know, it's not omniscient, doesn't know everything that's going on in the world. You as, you know, the GM being a little sneaky, just drop this little piece of treasure on them. 
you know, it's useful. It's an invisibility ring, you know? Okay, great, right? Um, don't let them know that all the other things that it can do or other side effects it may have. Then, you know, that's not the worst thing that can happen. I'm really enjoying that this is turning into good uh, good cop, bad cop here. It's like <laughs> Jeff craps on The Hobbit and then Hoy defends it. I, I like it. Uh, <laughs> and I will continue crapping on The Hobbit for just one more second here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Also... I thought it was hilarious that, you know, you've got these, you know, you've got Bilbo Baggins and Gandalf and Thorin Oakenshield and Elrond and Gollum and Bjorn and all these like really kind of great classical, very kind of like high fantasy names. Then we meet the trolls and their names are Bert, Bill and Tom. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, why Why are the trolls named Bert, Bill, and Tom when the humans, even the humans had these, like, fantastic right, bard names? Of, yeah, bard of the lake, yeah. <laughs> uh, again, I can only assume it was uh, just to sort of maybe take a little bit of the edge and danger off the trolls as he was telling the kids to- kid story. Because the trolls are actually quite monstrous, and, they're, you know, they're, you know they're, there's a level of comic comicality to them but they are actually quite monstrous in this yeah. book the spiders are scary though the spiders are quite scary and I don't feel like there's really any kind, any kind of an attempt to make the spiders any less scary mm, that's a good question um, hmm yeah that's interesting now this is a, going way far afield though but in sort of the again in Lord of the Rings they actually say you know the, the word hobbit is just a translation of whatever this other word was and you know the names Bilbo and blah blah are all rendered into something that is comprehensible to the human being of the 20th century and so that Frodo's <laughs> name doesn't actually sound like Frodo it's some weirdo old English sounding name so, so to me that means the trolls should have even weirder names right then. who knows <laughs> who knows um, that was a good pr- I did enjoy that that, that segment though I, I recall Really it's that. very fun. It's yeah. it's a very fun section, yeah. and it's a it's another great example of the appendix N presenting our protagonists with a challenge with a powerful monster that you don't necessarily need to defend. Uh, def- you don't need to um, defeat this monster with your weapons. Right, and in most cases, they're getting out of there with the wits, and they're, they're not the ultimate in. The ultimate heroes, they don't slay Smog. It's, it's Bard, and he's pretty much an NPC, so to speak. Um, and that's also because of a series of coincidences where this right. bird happens to come down and right. hear, hear them right. and happens to deliver the message to Bard. Right, right. <laughs> well, you know, maybe we resist the idea of uh, fate and destiny, you know, in our fiction these days. We, maybe that's an American thing of us that we, re- we require, you know, 100% agency and knowledge from our protagonists. Well, what I would say to that is if in the fiction itself the fact that the role of fate was an important part of this story and that's being made clear to me while I'm reading it, then my suspension of disbelief will not be stretched the way that it currently is. Mm -hmm. But if fate is never mentioned as a concept and all of these things keep happening coincidentally, that feels like cheap storytelling to me. Fair enough. So I guess you're going to love Burroughs then when we get to... We'll, we'll we'll get to Burroughs when we get to Burroughs, and actually, uh, he's he's uh, he's not far away. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, he's actually yeah, he's next. All right. Um, yeah, our next episode will be on Burroughs, but um, Burroughs does it with a sense of humor, though. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Again. We'll, we'll talk about that. Right. When right. We get right. To that episode. Sure. Um, but yes, but there's there's so much stuff in these stories that like uh, that are that that were ported over that we can still use now. You know, you've got your uh, you've got your wizards, you've got your thieves. You very clearly you've got dungeons here. Yeah. You've got your goblins, wargs, weir bears, elves. Yeah, giant, giant spiders, eagles, stone giants. Yeah, giant spiders. Right, the stone giants. As we forget about them, they're throwing the rocks when they're trying to cross over the white the misty mountains. Right. And also, one thing I noticed is when the spiders were here and Bilbo was invisible and he was singing his song to taunt the spiders. One of the names he was using over and over again was Adderkop. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what Adderkop is. Perhaps I should have Googled it before we started this episode. But it reminds me of the word Edercap, uh-huh. which is also a monster in Dungeons and Dragons. Mm, okay. I'm sure I'm sure that's not a coincidence. Hmm. Uh with Edercaps are those one of the ones with the red the the, the red uh, caps and the sort of sort of No, Edercaps in Dungeons and Dragons are these kind of spider humanoids. They're uh-huh. kind of like these uh-huh. big giants uh-huh. that kind of have go. like spider heads. Okay. Yeah. Um, I clearly have had my D and D card revoked because I don't. <laughs> I don't know when they showed up. I remember they were they were definitely in the third edition monster manual. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure they were also in the second edition. First edition, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I don't recall. I, uh, I feel like they weren't in the first 
AD&D Monster Manual, but perhaps they were in a later one. It's uh, possible there was the Monster Manual 2. I pretty much tapped out by Fiendfolio, I think, at that point, because I think had moved on to other games. So there's definitely a big gap in my knowledge in that regard. So, mm-hmm. uh, But maybe we'll find out and put it in the show notes. So there you go. And reading the book, were there anything, did you encounter anything that um, that you felt you could take from the books and use in your games now that maybe people aren't using as much or you hadn't been using previously? Well, there's the um, the idea of, it's not exactly a hex crawl, but the idea of a long journey. And, yes. Um, and that there's something at the end of the journey, but there's things, there's things along the way. So there's certainly that. The... Um, idea of sort of deprivations that they suffer along the way you know they're yeah. they're low on the food mm-hmm. and you know getting desperate when they're haunt, going through the mirkwood yeah um, rations so, are a big part of their journey yeah. and in your gaming do you keep track of rations um i would like to but as you know we mostly play sort of time limited sessions so mm-hmm. you know that's you know something that we're um, not necessarily equipped to do when we play these limited time sessions but if we're playing in campaign mode i think that if we got buy-in from the players saying this is the kind of game we're playing, it's going to be a game of exploration or long journeys, so you're going to have to factor that in. And, you know, we're not just going to hand wave and go to the action because part of that is the struggle of getting to where we're going to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to make the journey interesting, right? And, yes, you can hand wave like, okay, it takes 30 days, but now you, you know, take off 30 days worth of rations and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I think that's also maybe a very, very English thing. Uh, they were very fond of um, telling stories, of, you know, for example, you know, the polar explorers and, the, you know, they had just enough food to if you know make it to the pole but maybe not all not, all, not come all the way back so mm. what happens then you know so they have to stage the uh, the journey um so that idea of um you know sort of a communal action pulling together you know with the dwarves um you know maybe not as american as you know the lone hero on mm-hmm. you know on his horse uh you know so and here's you know yeah bilbo is in just a little country squire at yeah. best, right? And he has no desire to go on further adventures, right? He's, it's it's the, the high point of his life, but he has no desire to do that sure. again. Obviously, D&D is not really well set up for that because you constantly want to level. But is there a game that you can play that will be long but bring the characters back full circle? Mm-hmm. Um, what is the reward structure that you would create? Yeah. That would allow them to say, you know, I'm, I've returned home and that's it, you know, and then that's that's all I ever wanted to do. I don't know that D&D is set up for that, but it would be an interesting way to, to approach that. Certainly the idea that um, uh, the intelligent uh, the intelligent villain is not, you know, Smog is not just a boss monster, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the goblins are, are quite intelligent on their own right. And there's something they, that, they, that they need and that right. they want, right. and they're there for a very specific reason. They're right. not just goblins right. in, a, in a tunnel. Right. Uh, Bjorn is an interesting ally, but he's also dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's very, you know, it's made very clear that, you know, they're not to go just traipsing through Bjorn's territory, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they sort of have to announce themselves, you know, so to speak. And even the way that they go about introducing themselves in a right. very clever way is right. they're, they're able to do it in a way that doesn't incur his wrath. Um, so I think that sort of maybe laying, uh, again, it depends on how much, I guess, to a certain extent, how much time you have, but sort of mm-hmm. sort of foreshadowing the introduction of characters is not something that we always do in D&D. Sometimes we just come to the room and, oh, here's such and such, instead of saying sort of like, oh, you've heard that the next town over, there's the, you know, or this territory is ruled over by this thing and, you know, this weird bear and, you know, don't go into, the, you know, don't go hunting in his woods without, you know, bringing gifts or something like that, right? Yeah. So, um and just sort of laying that out there and not necessarily telling people that they have to pick it up right away, right? Mm-hmm. And that, obviously, again, that's more suited for a campaign structure yes. or a more sandboxy game than, again, a you know four-hour convention slot or something like that. But yeah, I actually am fond of the keeping track of supplies and doing that. It's just, again, not always easy to do. And you have to get buy-in from your players that that's what they want to do. And mm-hmm. uh, maybe players in this day and age are a little bit more impatient with that, having played, you know, sort of more, you know... Uh, MMO, you know, MMOs and that kind of stuff yes. like that. And so they're not as patient with that kind of stuff mm-hmm. like that. I recall, you know, doing that not to the nth degree when I was playing, but certainly, okay, do you have a 10-foot pole? I said, oh, no, you don't have one? Okay, well, you're not, yeah. <laughs> you know, you can find something else to probe along, right? Do you have a rope? You know, mm-hmm. right? And speaking of that, too, there's also several times in the story where the characters are completely, par- are totally parted from their equipment. You know, there's when when they um, when they escape from the wood elves' lair by their barrels. By the barrels, right? When they finally get out, they don't have any gear. They don't have any equipment. Then there's moments where they're trying to climb up along the mountain, and they can't. the The, the path is so narrow that they can't they can't shimmy up it without actually taking off their gear. And it was just making me think about how I, as a judge uh, or a DM, 
I never really part my characters and their gear. And it seems like it might be kind of a, a, a an upping of the stakes to create situations where if you are going to do this, you have to make decisions about what you are going to do with your gear. Right. Um, and I think we've talked about this in the past. I absolutely like that idea. I like, for example, saying, okay, you want to sneak through here? You might want to take off the armor mm-hmm. and sneak quietly. And you know, there's a risk you'll be discovered and you won't have your armor with you. Um, but as I said, I think that when you you should let the reward, potential reward of not having their gear or the from both the game point of view and from the specific situation be in balance with the risks. Mm-hmm. And you don't, again, you don't automatically punch, oh, you took your helmet off and a rock falls on your head. Ha ha. You know, we don't do that, right? Yeah. We, we, we say, okay, good. Okay, if you want to do that, here's the potential problem. But, you know, it's worth it because you might be able to sneak past the goblin now. You're not wearing the mm-hmm. armor and you might find an alternate path between past the whole goblin tribe. Great. Yeah. So I think, yes, I think the, the idea of parting them with the gear, and maybe, again, that's something you probably have to do early in the game, easy come, easy go. Otherwise, mm-hmm. people will be very resistant to that. Yes, right. that's true. Um, so you have to set that tone. I agree. And, and give them opportunities to find uh, things that are appropriate to their situation will get them out of the situation if, you know, they're coming along, in the, you know, a cliff, uh, you know, and they don't have their rope, but, you know, have someone spot. You know, with their, you know, some kind of perception check that, oh, you know, there's some, you know, if you go along this way, it's going to be really risky, but there's some good handholds here mm-hmm. if you know how to do this, right? Yeah. Or, um, so I think that those are the kind of things that you need to um, accommodate. I don't think you should ever just throw up a hard block on a, on, on a player's actions. And, you know, I'm not an improv guy, but, you know, there's that whole sort of yes and or, you know not absolute negations. You know, again, we're not here to spoon feed the players and they do have to have the consequences of their actions. Um, But you should always give them a viable plan B, even if it just means backing up, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot in there. And I I think the the adventure, having deprivation in adventure makes it more, you know, the stakes, uh, you know, stand out. I agree. Now, the story is called The Hobbit. So let's talk about hobbits. Yeah. So hobbits, you know, as as we know, they they were hobbits in OD&D and then were very quickly changed to halflings. And now in our in our Dungeons and Dragons, Dungeon Crawl Classics, um, whatever kind of fantasy role playing game you're playing, they're halflings now. But halflings today seem pretty darn different than hobbits. What do you think? Um, I think it depends on the game, but certainly yes. I mean, there's um, you know now they're just short, but they're not necessarily sort of again fat, jolly little Englishmen. Um, so and they wear shoes. They wear shoes, which is wrong. It's just so wrong. Yeah, <laughs> it's like I, I look at I look at a contemporary halfling. In say fifth edition, right. and they don't look anything like what I think of as a hobbit, yeah, the and they don't act a... anything like what I think of as how fifth, hobbits act. Fifth edition halflings are particularly problematic with their and gigantic the, noggins. Those kind of manga characters. And I would argue that it, it didn't start with fifth edition. It probably um, it I think it kind of started with Dragonlance. Hmm. Um, hmm. But like I think it's kind of started in the second edition era where like it really started to to part ways with. The Hobbit as we know it. Mm. I feel like Dungeon Crawl Classic, Dungeon Crawl Classics, really is, is a much closer vision right. to the original Hobbit uh, than what, what what we think of now. Right. And particularly because in Dungeon Crawl Classics they have a, a luck mechanic. Yeah, no, absolutely. They're sort yeah. of the mascot for the party, and that's basically what Bilbo does. You know, mm-hmm. he has a few sets of skills that he uses, but they're always complaining about him. Like, oh, we brought this burglar along. He's eating us out of a you know, house and home. And yes. when is when will he become useful? Right. Exactly. And um and in Dungeon Crawl Classics, luck is one of your stats. And just having a halfling there, the, the halfling's able to use his luck to make everybody else luckier. Right. right. He's and, basically a luck battery, and he's the only one who sort of recharges, mm-hmm. uh, you know, other than the thief. But then the thief doesn't benefit the party as a whole with his luck, which the halfling does. So. Yes, yes. Um, and to me, that really seems to fit with the the feeling of The Hobbit. Like, while reading The Hobbit, I'm just like, yes! Like, that was a really clever inclusion. Mm-hmm. Although... Dungeon Call Classics also also deviates from the core from the core concept of the Hobbit because in Dungeon Call Classics the the Hobbit is also this like little dual wielding murder machine like he's running around with, like his like his like two little short swords or his two little daggers and he's just like slicing and hacking everything up and it's a totally super fun character to play uh, but that aspect of it does not in any way resemble the Hobbit that I'm familiar with. Mm, that's true. <laughs> now. Uh... To take it a little farther afield, it's ironic. I would think that probably one of the people 
most hates hobbits is James Radji of Lamentations of the Flame Princess. But <laughs> his actual write-up of halflings in uh, uh, the Lamentations of the Flame Princess role-playing game is actually very close. They're, they're shy. They have good wilderness skills, mm. uh, good stealth skills. Uh, they're not thieves, though. They don't pick locks and, uh, and pick pockets. So, uh, it, it, you know, they don't have that luck mechanic because that's one thing that's not there in Lamentations is luck. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, whatever the opposite of that is. That but, uh, but no, his, his write-up is actually uh, quite good, and it's a very clean write-up. So it's a, a strange... Um, again, you wouldn't think that he would be the guy who would actually do a good job with that, uh, but uh, he was. Well, and actually, maybe, maybe there's something to that. Yeah. Maybe because ultimately the Hobbit is kind of... Uh, or Hobbits in general are not great choices for adventuring races. Like you if if you're going to if you're going to like look at humans, hobbits, elves and dwarves side by side and you're going to say who do I want in my adventuring party? The hobbits probably be the last person that you pick. And with Dungeons and Dragons and Dungeon Crawl Classics, they're probably going through a lot of uh, probably going to a lot of effort to make sure that this character can be just as badass as all these other ones. And maybe James Radji isn't maybe he's not concerned with that. Maybe he's okay with letting the hobbit not be quite as good as the rest of them. <laughs> you know, some people hate the game because, you know, only the fighters improve in combat and stuff like that. Which and, I kind of love, actually. Right. I think um, that's really cool. It is actually very interesting. So, in fact, the Hobbit is not particularly nerfed compared to any of the other classes. Okay. But it's, you know, in that sense. Um, it's not a particularly powerful class, but it's not particularly nerfed. But, yeah, I think the the Tolkien Hobbit, the Tolkien Halfling is, is um, yes, Joseph Goodman's trying to make him viable with the luck mechanic, which is right there in the fiction. The mm-hmm. dual wielding is just a little extra bit of flavor, I think. And it's very fun flavor. Yeah, it's fun flavor. And it doesn't make them, like, enormously powerful because it's not like they get, you know, all these sort of bonus deeds, so to speak, on top of that, you know, so. If you've got a halfling in Dungeon Call Classics with good strength, though, you yeah. really are a murder machine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they are a lot of fun to play. They are, you know, because they still have the stealth skills and, yes. and what have you. Um, so they are a lot of fun to play. Yeah, I don't know what this sort of drift in what the the halfling or hobbit you know uh, represents in the the D, you know you know what people's conception is i mean maybe it's come back because of the uh, you know the peter jackson films you know closer to the uh, you know again we can argue all day and night about whether peter jackson actually understands tolkien but <laughs> at least on the surface presentation it's closer to the uh, the source material so to speak but you could also argue that the halfling uh, just represents sort of this small connected to nature but it's not an elf they're not mystical but they're more closely connected to the land so you could play them as you know a bushman if you were playing sort of an african south you know game set in africa you know various tribes you could play you could essentially reskin the halfling as um if you're playing a north american game as you know a north american indian if you want to some sort of again we don't want to get too stereotypical but anyway people who are sort of closer to nature who are not uh there in your face as you know barbarians so to speak right mm-hmm. so uh, there's certainly be ways to reskin and sort of keep the essence there that's my sort of uh the lost years after first edition of ad and d or uh, you know uh, expert i guess uh as far as D and D was concerned so I'm, I'm not fully familiar with the uh, evolution of the the halfling sure uh afterwards but um, when i picked up DCC said, oh, yeah, okay, I, I get this. <laughs> you know, I, I get the halfling here. I understand the halfling, you know. One thing that I thought was interesting that I did not remember from my first read um, was that one of the at one of the points where Gandalf goes away for a very long time in the book, he goes off to deal with the necromancer. Mm-hmm. And him and, like, this army of elves go and defeat the necromancer. Now, I don't know who the necromancer is. It, that, that's not that's, Sauron. That is, is Sauron. That's is Sauron. Sauron has not come back into his full power yet. So he's trying to reestablish a foothold in Middle-earth. Okay. Um, so he was basically in his disguise identity. He didn't want to let people know that he had returned. So he, was, oh. so he was trying to establish a new base of power, but he didn't want to return to Mordor before he's at his full power. Otherwise, you know, all the powers of the West would try to overthrow him. Now, is that is that information revealed to us in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, or is that Cimmerillion stuff, or is that just Wikipedia? Like, um, how, how do you know I, this? Hmm, good question. I have, well, maybe we'll have to reread and come back to the Lord of the Rings. I don't know if it's in the <laughs> appendices. Uh, okay. There's an appendices about the wizards, uh-huh. or if it's in the actual narrative and Gandalf says, oh, this is what happened. Okay. Um, I know in the movies they make a big point of it and they, they stri- uh, the Hobbit movies and cuts the Hobbit I don't know how they could justify a trilogy out of that one book but so they added all this other stuff and they did oh, the yeah. Necromancer stuff I really enjoyed Lord of the Rings movies yeah. the Hobbit movies yeah. I, I watched the first one and a half and I right. was I only got to the first one so oh. 
but Awful. but Awful. yes, but yes, Sauron is in fact uh, the necromancer is in fact Sauron. Okay. Um, it's funny they, they call him the necromancer, but then that's all you hear about. You don't hear about him like raising up zombies or mm-hmm. you know communing with the dead or something like that. And, and I remember seeing that word, not knowing what a necromancer was. Like, what is a necromancer? You yeah. Know? And then I, I don't even think I was had the wherewithal to go to a dictionary and say what is a necromancer. Sure. But, um, so. And that's another interesting thing is yeah. when in Dungeons and Dragons when we think of a necromancer, we yeah. think of a wizard who's specifically dealing with the undead or right. with death magic. Yeah. Where it seems like in the Appendix N, when we encounter necromancer, it just means a wizard who deals in black magic. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's there's and there's it's multi- kind of the male witch. Right. I guess so. If it's the dark unknown magics that are not clearly aligned with the you're not clearly not divine or mm-hmm. or or scholarly purely scholarly and gandalf is a white wizard and right. he's up against a necromancer so this right. is another another example of white magic versus black right, right. magic uh are they still he's still gandalf the gray here right? he has not become gandalf the white until uh lord of the, the i mean he's a white magician but he's yes. not he's not gandalf the white until he, he's resurrected in uh the, the lord of the rings well there's still so much more i feel like we could talk about but we should probably wrap this up yeah, I mean, well, you know, we can always uh, come full circle with the uh, the various uh, Lord of the Rings books, which we'll be reading later on in this series. So. Exactly, and we will be doing an episode on each of the three books, so we're going to have plenty of time to talk about Middle-earth and Tolkien. Absolutely. And again, we do love the halfling. There is no halfling hate on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, what are we reading next, Jeff? Well, so next up, episode six will be Edgar Rice Burroughs' At the Earth's Core. And episode seven will be Fletcher Pratt's The Blue Star. Very exciting. Okay, so uh, before we go, we'd uh, like to ask you, if you really enjoyed the podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It really helps other people find us. Uh, if you wanted to tell us anything, uh, send us an email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We also now have a website with the show notes, uh, which we put a lot of work into, which is appendixnbookclub.com. And real quick, I would like to add on to that, that we, we have received three reviews uh, three five-star reviews, so thank you. Uh, we got one from Edison Audio Guy. Says, these guys obviously know what they're talking about. I'm looking forward to future episodes. Uh, TLM Brooklyn says, interesting topic and a well-rounded perspective. I really enjoyed listening to the repartee of the hosts. A good introduction to what they are doing and why. I look forward to further talks. Thank you. Thank you, yes. And uh, Gangus says, this promises to be an excellent ongoing analysis of the literary roots of modern tabletop role-playing games. The hosts are clearly well-informed about the source material and the games themselves. So thank you guys so much, and please keep leaving us reviews and subscribe to the show on iTunes. All right. And uh, don't forget, if you're in Brooklyn, you can meet us in real life. Uh, join up at the uh, our reading group at Mia's Bakery. Uh, you can look for us on meetup.com. Uh, We're the... Dungeon Crawl Classics NYC group. And mm-hmm. uh, we have uh, meetups about uh, twice a month for the reading group. Okay, thank you so much, and we will see you next time. Read on. Read on.